Welcome to another episode of Credit Eco to Go, curbside thought leadership for financial services. My name is Joanne Needleman, and I am a partner at the law firm Clark Hill PLC, as well as a member of the firm's banking and financial services practice group. Today on our podcast, we are talking to Manny Newberger, who is the leader of the Consumer Financial Services Law Practice Group at Barron and Newberger in Austin, Texas. Manny is also an adjunct professor at the University of Texas Law School, where he also teaches consumer protection law. In my opinion, Dan, uh, Manny is the dean of this industry, and he's certainly been a champion and an advocate. Manny, I remember the first time I met you. I believe it was in New York at the Commercial Law League Conference, got to be well over 20 years ago, when it was at the World Trade Center. <laughs> that was a really nice place. Um, you were doing a presentation on the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. I had no idea what that statute was. And you told the audience that that statute was going to cause tremendous heartburn for the consumer financial services industry. And I don't think anyone in the audience believed you. <laughs> uh, I think they certainly believe you now. And you have certainly showed them uh, how complicated that statute can be. Um, so I appreciate you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I look forward to our discussion. Well, thanks, Joanne. I appreciate you having me, and thanks for the kind words. And and yeah, for a little while, I felt like a guy wandering in the desert trying to get someone to listen to the prophecies. <laughs> I think you did. I think you did a good job. I think you achieved what you wanted to achieve. So, Manny, let me set the table a little bit, and I really want to hear your perspective. So the pandemic has, I can't even talk, the pandemic has really put a focus on consumer financial services. The CARES Act specifically addressed relief for consumers with regard to mortgages, student loans, and credit reporting. And, and Congress really you know, did a very broad mandate about how these industries should act during this, pan, uh, during this pandemic. And throughout this crisis and even continuing today, Many states have added additional moratoriums regarding debt collection, uh, prohibitions against evictions for non-payment of rent, prohibitions against garnishment and vehicle seizures. So states have been extremely active as well. And then couple that with the entire financial services industry, which is highly regulated anyway, uh, having to move their vast operations to work from home, which was never a consideration but for this pandemic. So we've got uh, a perfect storm, in my opinion, for an area of increased enforcement, supervisions and investigations, both by state and federal regulators, including state's attorney generals. And I I'm curious about your perspective and what you think uh, those groups will be looking for from financial services entities. I think there could be several things. First, they're going to look to see how companies proactively address the COVID-19 situation? What policies did they implement to address credit reporting to ensure that consumers weren't reported as delinquent uh, to especially take care of credit reporting on payment arrangements and deferments and hardship plans? Uh, what they did to address calling patterns? And this is an example, as you know, we can't call consumers at a time or place we know or should know is inconvenient. I'm just waiting to see someone asking about what did you do with the stay-at-home parents who were trying to educate their kids during the day when 
the parents said, I can't talk now. I'm trying to run school at home for my kids. What did you do? What did you do in response to that? Um, I think it's very easy to take the COVID-19 consequences, work your way through the FDCPA and find an easy half dozen potential violations to investigate. You do the same thing with the SCRA. In fact, one of the things that, that intrigues me is that the data furnish rule that applies to the handling of credit disputes mandates periodic uh, updating of policies. And I'm really curious to see whether they're going to come in and see whether companies updated their policies as a result of COVID-19 for the handling of credit disputes. You know, the CFPB came out with, with various guidance. A lot of the agencies have come out with various guidance during COVID because there's just no playbook for this. I mean, who, who knew this was going to happen? And the Bureau has said, look, we understand to, to industry, the Bureau has said, look, we understand that your operations have been disrupted. We understand that, uh, you know, couple that with, with consumers being concerned about their financial status. But, under, but, but we're going to tell you that come time for examination or supervision, we're going to keep that in mind. What do you make of that? <laughs> Is well, there an element of, tr of truth to that? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. So the reality is that the response to COVID really created a need for a lessening of certain building protections the industry's created. Most of our clients, yours and mine both, had invested massive amounts of money in compliance, in oversight, in auditing, in electronic procedures to ensure compliance. Um, you know, let's face it, anytime a client can use an electronic mechanism to ensure there's compliance and not have to take chances on human error, they're going to do it. That's why so many of our clients have built in programming that, you know, as you get close to 9 p.m., they won't well an outbound call. Uh, they, they won't allow an outbound call before 8.01 a.m. Uh, they're, they're taking most restrictive uh, time periods, comparing zip code to area code to be sure that there's a disconnect between where someone lives and what their area code on their cell phone is, that you don't call them out of bounds. All that's built in electronically just to not rely on errors in judgment. Uh, now we've got people working from home. You know, was there gonna be a gap possibly in recording systems where people didn't get their recordings implemented immediately for the calls from home, possibly. Is, has the auditing been relaxed? Almost certainly. Right. Um, In-person oversight. I mean, let, let's, let's just take that one. If I'm, an, if I'm a business owner, I'm not sending someone to somebody's house. I might send two people to someone's house, but I'm not sending one person to someone's house. That's just another type of lawsuit waiting to happen. And, uh, and if I'm sending anyone to someone's house to audit, I'm sending a, a man and a woman, come out, someone from each gender who's doing that audit so that I do everything I can to eliminate certain foreseeable issues. So while I'm trying to put all this in place, let's just face it, the things we say we do to ensure compliance may not have functioned perfectly. And I think the bureaus conveyed they're gonna look to see how hard you tried. Now, now if you're asking me, I'm really proud of my industry clients. I think they've done an amazing job. I agree. I uh, agree. A huge percentage of the debt collection industry has for the last two and a half, three months, really been a customer service industry. Um, they, they have been 
proactively reaching out to people saying, we know you're hurting, what can we do to help? We know you're on a payment plan. Can you still do this? Do you need relief? Um, taking the inbound calls from people who are panicked, doing everything they can to assure people that, that their lives aren't going to be destroyed because of circumstances beyond their control. And I'm just amazed at really how good a job they have done. Uh, I'm, I'm truly proud of, of my clients. And, and I'm going to point out to you, you know, getting paid on a contingent fee to tell people not to pay you is not a sustainable business model. <laughs> but I don't hear my industry clients complaining about that. They're out there trying to do the right thing. Manny, I've seen that um, time and time again since the end of March. Um, and it has been a great opportunity for the industry because, ne but for this pandemic, there has never been more inbound communication from consumers than there has been prior to COVID. So it really allowed the industry an opportunity to shine and be helpful and leave a lasting impression upon consumers um, for the next COVID crisis, for the next emergency that may, that, that may uh, arise. But Manny, you and I have been doing this uh, longer than we want to say uh, in a recording. And you know that supervision and investigations are in the eyes of the beholder. And yet the best uh, intentions and policies and procedures and uh, following of guidance sometimes just doesn't mean anything depending on the examiner or depending on the agency and the political preferences at, at, you know, at the given time. My fear is that, you know, as we, we're going to see potentially maybe a change in administration, there's certainly a change in philosophy that, that's happening before our eyes. And, I, you know, I'm concerned that uh, as best as our industry has done and other industries that I do want to talk about in a minute, um, what should be some of the concerns? If, if, if you are a business right now, you're doing everything you're supposed to be doing, but you know, maybe come September, maybe come beginning of 2020, you're gonna get a CID or something in the mail that's gonna ask for, what'd you do between March and June? And what did that look like? How should these companies prepare? Um, funny, I've got clients already getting those. Um, and. Uh... I think to a large extent, the same sort of work you and I often do with clients, which is walking through with a lawyer who understands both the law and your business, the answer to the question, why did you do that? Or why didn't you do something? And exploring the reasons and ensuring that there are good explanations that people can articulate so that when they're asked the question by an examiner on the fly, they don't get that deer in the headlights moment that results in a really bad answer. Um, there's going to be a good answer to almost every exception to normal protocols. It, it may not be the answer an examiner likes, but there's going to be a good answer in almost every instance. And the owners just need to think about it, remember why they did things. Because here's the other thing. Some of those decisions were made along with 3,000 other decisions, and people don't remember why they made the decision until they go back and refresh their memories and, and create some archival records on why things were done. Uh, and now's the time to do it while you still remember. Yep. <laughs> take it. Take it from those who don't. Whose whose short term memory is pretty much gone. It's interesting, Maddie. You know, I'm having a lot of conversations also with you know traditional banks, even smaller banks who've gotten involved in PPP, uh, who've had to deal with who are 
maybe servicing mortgages for Fannie and Freddie, um, you know, maybe originated them, sold them to Fannie and Freddie, but they're servicing them. And, you know, it was a very confused, it's it, in these last couple months have been a confusing time. And, and, and I'm sure as you know, I mean, I'm on the treasury website every day and every day there's another rule. There's another change. Uh, yesterday, uh, late afternoon, they changed the whole forgiveness uh, application. They now call it the easy application for PPP. So having learned the whole forgiveness process a couple weeks ago, I had to now throw that in the trash and learn the new process. And, you know, I'm a lawyer and I sit around here and, and do that all day. But for banks, there's other things that they have to do and their compliance departments have been stretched. And I've been warning them. I mean, I think banks are used to examinations. It happens all the time, you know, every year, 18 months. But the scope of the examinations that they're going to see uh, in the next six to 12 months, especially around the PPP, they need to be prepared for that. And, uh, you know, our industry is, is, is just learning about supervision and examinations. Um, and they, they've been, uh, you know, feeling their way in the dark for some time. But uh, I say the same thing to, you, to, to banks. Um, I, I know you, you, you want to look at your safety and soundness and your loans, but there's going to be a whole new set of questions uh, that you're going to have to be prepared for. Let's um, talk about investigations in general. Um, as people and, and our clients and, and, and maybe even other, other industry participants who maybe haven't been investigated, especially at the state level um, by state examiners, what are some of the things, you know, thinking about getting ready for an examination, what are some of the things you need to prepare for? What, what should you be getting in order? Well, you know, first and foremost, your financial records. You know, for, for lawyers like us, you know, we deal with so many consumer protection issues. Uh, we have to always stop and remind ourselves that the majority of the state laws regulating debt collectors are really there to protect the creditors when it comes to examination. Mm -hmm. and uh, fiscal accountability is huge. And in fact, it was really interesting to me because when Nevada directed every collection agency to shut down, I wrote to them and said, so are you excusing them from their duties to report and remit? And they wouldn't respond. <laughs> <laughs> and I think... <laughs> they, they forget, you know, it, this is called credit ecosystem for a reason, Manny. <laughs> yeah, understood, but... And I always talk about unibody construction, everything right. connected. And, and, and so, you know, we've got to recognize that the reality is, first and foremost, look at your, your reporting and remitting practices. Look for exceptions because the auditors are all over that. They're, they're smart. They're competent. Um, I have to say, you know, I know the auditors in a number of the states, and I have a really high regard for their competence levels. And I think the transparency is key. If there's a mistake, be prepared to address it. Say, yeah, I knew you were gonna ask that, here's what happened. Mm -hmm. um, but be sure there is an answer or an explanation if there are mistakes. Be sure you can address them. If, if you went out of trust, God help you, you may be better off disclosing it than having them catch you. Right. Um, and, and so I would start there. Once I get past the duties to the creditors, then I've got the duties to the consumers, of course, We've got a couple of states that, that particularly concern me. Uh, Massachusetts would be the big one. Uh, as you know, the, the emergency regulations were held to be unconstitutional. 
that did nothing to address the pre-existing regulations in Massachusetts. And Massachusetts has some very strict rules regarding call frequency and regarding uh, the validation of debts. They have their own debt validation requirements. Uh, and I would be looking pretty closely to see if I've been complying with that because I fully expect the Consumer Protection Division there to be vigilant. Uh, the lawyers I deal with in that division are extremely competent, dedicated public servants. I'll just put it that way. Um, I have found their ability to dig into data to be pretty good. Yeah, um, they, they clearly are. They, they are some of the best of the best, that is for sure. So, you know, what authorities do regulators have? And if, if they're going to start an investigation, um, you know, sometimes it's, I, I, you know, when my client gets a CID or a subpoena or some sort of inquiry, even at the state level, the first question is, can they do that? <laughs> and my answer is yes. <laughs> they can pretty much do what they want, but kind of give a flavor of what an entity may be looking at, uh, especially at the state level. We'll talk federal in a second of, of what state regulators can come in and ask for and do. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. It used to be that the state subpoenas were very different than what we saw from the FTC. Mm -hmm. I'm finding more and more of the state regulators are using the same CID formats that the federal government uses. The uh, document production specifications are virtually identical to those of the CFPB. And that's pretty serious stuff. I, I have taken the document production standards that the CFPB uses on a CID and just, you know, redacted everything out, taking them to clients with their own internal IT departments with incredible ability to deliver data and information and said, here's how we'll have to produce documents. And the answer consistently is there's no way in hell we can do that. We're going to have to hire a vendor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, few of my clients can even manage the document production on their own because of the way it has to be produced. We've got to do forensic copies that preserve the metadata. We know that the government's going to look and see if there are anomalies. Why is a document's creation date different than its purported date? Um, we know that they can and will ask for large amounts of information dealing with your interactions with consumers, uh, oral and written. Uh, what, what's really troubling to me is the requirement of producing reports, which you know the CFPB started this because they've got clear authority for it, but we've seen it at the state level too where they say, we want you to produce this information and they actually specify a report where they're telling you to analyze your data in a way that essentially incriminates you. They want you to, to, right. to extract the data and put it together in a way that gives them line of sight into the violations they're trying to, to locate. Uh, and that's really not a lot of fun. Uh, the, one of the most burdensome things though, and I always talk about this, it's the number one thing I talk about with every client the minute they get a CID, is it is rare if ever that we get a CID that doesn't impose a, a, an immediate halt on all document destruction policies. And, you know, it is hard for most companies to imagine just how burdensome that is until they're about three or six months into a CID and yep. realize they haven't been able to destroy a single piece of paper and they've got rooms full of paper that are piling up and become fire hazards. I've got one client who at the close of their CFPB investigation was a, finally able to free up 4,500 square feet of space that was being used to store documents they couldn't destroy. Mm. And 
I, I'm just curious if you had the same experience on the document destruction, because that, that's been a really serious burden to a lot of my clients. It has been, because as you know, especially on the, I can't say on the state side. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I, I have a matter right now. We're two years into an investigation. Um, and it is, a, it is a company that is very document intensive. Um, they're, they're kind of, I would call them somewhat, uh, they do provide a specific financial service, but it's also from an accounting basis. So there's constantly the sense of renewing applications and assessing income. And, you know, that is, that is very document oriented. So yeah, I, I've seen that a lot and it, it is. And, you know, as, as, as many of our listeners know, I mean, in a supervision scenario, I mean, whether it be a state regulator or federal regulator, and depending on the size of your company, they could come in and sit there for six weeks. You're going to have to give them office space. Now, uh, I don't know when that's going to start up again, uh, but in the heyday, uh, I've had clients who have had to designate, you know, get computers, have to designate office space. Um, these people were, you know, uh, they were like every other employee. They came to work every day <laughs> and it can be disruptive. And, um, you know, again, uh, we're going to, there was a little bit of an ebb of this in the change of administration at the Bureau. Uh, but you, I mean, while people at the top of the Bureau may have changed, all the verticals coming down and the people that we have dealt with for the last six or seven years have not. So they are continuing to do the work that they believe in, and they are continuing to do the work that they believe that they've been hired to do. And uh, while maybe the volume of investigations has, go, has gone down and, and as well as supervisions, I, I firmly believe that after we get past this crisis, it's the, there's gonna be full throttle, complete full throttle. I, I think you were correct. Um, and just a reminder, if I recall correctly, the first debt buyer that was examined i think was told they were going to have 22 examiners on site for 22 weeks yep with yeah. their original prediction right um the uh the reality is and i suspect you do the same thing i spend a lot of time with clients talking about where they're going to put examiners and this is a conversation i have with my friends in, in the state agencies that regulate the industry they say yeah you know someone puts us in a basement room with no air conditioning Trust us, we're not hurrying the investigation. We're slowing, we're slowing down the audit because we know they're trying to get rid of us and there's something to hide. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. You know, I, I'm looking for the most comfortable place I can put the examiners. If I get a wow facial expression from an examiner on the room that we've designated for them, I know we did it right. What, you know, it's a good segue, Manny, to, to, to close the loop on this discussion. And that is, you know, why should businesses be concerned? because the penalties that can be assessed both at the state and federal level um, can be significant. And you and I, in prepping for this, talked about, you know, you're, I'm seeing a lot of this on the FTC side, um, not so much on the, on the CFP, CFPB side, although there was one or two that came out recently, but there is, you know, there are uh, penalties and fines that include banning from the industry. And that can be significant. And it's a funny thing on that, because it used to be that the federal government considered bans to be a very rare tool to be used. Um, the, the people you and I deal with at the FTC in particular, some of them are now at the CFPB, always viewed bans as an extreme measure that they only used in the worst of situations. That's right. 
but we're seeing it used more and more. And for those who don't know, a ban is a federal court order that says you can't ever practice in the industry again. Uh, and when I do training, I always remind collectors, you, you could find you're not able ever to use any of the skills you've built over decades to make a living if you're subjected to a ban. And the, the FTC at least maintains a website of banned companies and individuals. Uh, so it, it's a really scary proposition to discover, you know, you're, you're now the former CEO of a mortgage company and you can never be in the mortgage business again for the rest of your life. And I've seen that happen. Yeah, I've seen I've seen that happen too. So it's there are you know, there are a lot of considerations. And think of before you you, you put the examiners in the basement. <laughs> Make sure they're at least uh, on the same level playing field as everybody else in your office. Uh, you're not necessarily treating them differently. You're cooperating as best that you can. And I I know it's difficult. Um, but I think the most important thing um, that, that I learned from a couple other clients and colleagues that I've known in the industry is remember that when these um, examiners come in, they don't have a full knowledge of what your business is about, the nuances of your business. I know one colleague that had a, a supervision for almost six weeks and uh, the first three days, they basically spent explaining to the examiners how they run their business. They had PowerPoints, they had charts, they had videos. They gave them a tour of the office. They introduced them to everybody. This is our business. This is how, you know, this is how we operate. And so there was that comfort level. And uh, I know for, uh, for a fact that they, uh, they got a closed letter. They tried, <laughs> but they couldn't find anything. Uh, so, I mean, that is, you know, some, some food for thought. And especially now, in kind of looping all this together, uh, they are not going to understand how your work from home policies were developed. They're not going to understand how your how your agents work from home. So the, the best that you can tell that story and prove that narrative, uh, the better you will be. Should you know should should you get a knock at the door that they want to come in? Well, and there are four words I found that are really useful to me. Those four words are, "How do you know?" Right. Because people tell me we do X or we don't do Y. And then we start down the four words. How do you know? <laughs> it's amazing what you can learn with those four words. It really, really is. Uh, Manny, such a, always a great discussion. Uh, it's a reminder that we've got some speed bumps coming up at the end of this year and into 2021. So uh, everybody needs to stay tuned. So before I let you go, um, as we're trying to keep up some traditions at Credit Eco to go, um, I'm asking all my guests about your favorite takeout experiences or experience while you were sheltering in place. Austin's got some great restaurants. There has to be some good stories there. We do. I, I actually have to confess my favorite takeout experience was just simply the day the Top Notch reopened because it's our favorite fried chicken place in town. <laughs> and, and you know it if you saw Dazed and Confused because it was the drive-in where all the kids hung out in the movie. Uh, <laughs> That's great. But, but my favorite actual experience, uh, setting aside my favorite day of it all on takeout, was a little Korean restaurant we found. We, we discovered this place. Their menu looked great. We ordered through our, our first and probably last experience with favor. Uh, and you know, first, also, your your food will be ready by you know, seven thirty, then seven forty-five, then eight thirty, then nine thirty. Then it's telling us ten thirty, 
And so finally we called the restaurant and said, do you even have our order? And they said, no. So, so we canceled it with favor and the restaurant was so sweet. They said, you know, you're past, we actually do some delivery, but you're outside our, our area, but we're open for, for takeout if you want to pick it up. So we ordered and, and I ordered a bottle of soju because they were letting restaurants sell alcohol if you're getting right. food with it to go. And, and showed up and, and they had this little table set up outside the restaurant to come out to the table. And, and, and the guy who runs the restaurant was so sweet. And I, and I thanked him in Korean, you know, with all my travel, I, people say, how many languages do you speak? And I usually say I'm Texan, I have a hard time with English. But <laughs> I, I can be polite in a few dozen languages. And I thanked him in, in very formally in Korean, actually. And he was so tickled, he ran back and he made me take, you know, restaurant logo branded shot glasses with me for my soju. <laughs> <laughs> he was so tickled to have someone who appreciated him. And, and we've been back a few times since. They're just the nicest people. It was a great discovery. So oh, great. we never would have known how, how nice they were. Uh, Favor hadn't screwed up and forced us to go do a takeout. It is so great to see how, you know, restaurants have really, there's a certain place in my heart for restaurants. My husband uh, works in the restaurant industry and it's been so sad to see how, devastated many of them were because of this crisis. I mean, I think they had, they and nail salons and beauty parlors have been hurt the most. And, um, but some of them have gotten so creative. Some of them have, you know, they didn't have it before, but they have a takeout window now. Um, and that's how they're surviving. Some of them have interesting and have developed new menus, which, which has been great. So thank you for that story. That's great. Um, one more thing before I let you go, we do have a charity element um, with Credit Eco to go. And in consideration for your time, we'd like to make a small donation either to a local charity uh, that helps support restaurant workers or a local food bank in your area. And uh, do you have a particular charity in mind you'd like to tell us about? Um, you know, our firm did a, our firm's charitable, charitable foundation did a pretty substantial contribution to Meals on Wheels. That's one we like, but frankly, anything along those lines. If you've got one that provides health insurance for the workers, that would be an awesome one. I'll look into uh, that. Um, but if, if not, certainly any of the food banks would be spectacular. People are in need right now. Um, and anything that helps support them is important. I know we, we keep talking about the importance of the insurer. We always tip fully on every takeout. You know, make, make sure people get those tips. They need them. And... Uh, we're just tickled to see how hard folks are trying. I, I honestly, I think customer service has come back at a lot of restaurants because of this. I agree with you. I agree with you. It's, it's really been nice to see. Well, Manny, always a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for coming on to our show. I really appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, and thank you for listening again to our podcast, Credit Eco to Go, Curbside Thought Leadership for Financial Services. If you'd like more information on this podcast and future podcasts, that can be found on the Clark Hill website, which is clarkhill.com forward slash people forward slash Joanne Needleman. You search my bio page, there will be a link uh, to the podcast and all the episodes that we have recorded to date, or you can go onto my LinkedIn page. Thanks again, everyone. Be well and stay safe. This podcast is intended for general education and informational purposes only, and should not be regarded as either legal advice or a legal opinion. 
you should not act upon or use this publication or any of its contents for any specific situation. Recipients are cautioned to obtain legal advice from their legal counsel with respect to any decision or course of action contemplated in a specific situation. Clark Hill PLC and its attorneys provide legal advice only after establishing an attorney-client relationship through a written attorney-client engagement agreement. This recording does not establish an attorney-client relationship with any recipient. Mm -hmm.